Fortunato. I'm a corporate litigation attorney at Young Conaway, Stargat, and Taylor, a law firm in Wilmington, Delaware. Today on this podcast, we are going to discuss some e-discovery best practices that attorneys should implement to help them conduct e-discovery in a way that is both efficient and meets their ethical and evidentiary obligations. I have asked Andrew McClary to join me today. Andy is a technology manager at DLS Discovery, which is a leading provider of e-discovery managed document review and trial and legal support services for Amalaw 100 firms and Fortune 500 companies. He has over 13 years experience in e-discovery and he is my go-to person for e-discovery projects. So as a disclaimer, um, I have worked with Andy on, on several different projects. Awesome. Thank you. So Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, I think this is a, a pertinent topic for you know junior, mid-level associates at a law firm on what do you do when you get an e-discovery project? Yeah, and I, I think without trying to offend too many people, I, I think this is something that a lot of our, you know, senior attorneys can can learn from as well because it's a it's still kind of a new and growing field even though it's been out there for a while. Um, so I'm excited to talk about it today. Well, I guess we'll start with e discovery is basically just discovery that you're doing in an electronic manner and as an attorney, you have an obligation ethically, the ABA model rules of professional conduct, rule 3.4, says that you cannot obstruct unlawfully another party's access to evidence. And procedurally, under the federal rule of civil procedure 37E, you can risk adverse findings, sanctions, etc. if you fail to preserve electronically stored information. So my first question, Andy, is what is ESI? Sure. Um, so ESI, uh, electronically stored information, is essentially information, documents, communications that are best represented in an electronic format. Uh, you know, emails that have been generated, Word documents created on a computer. Um, one of the benefits that we have from working with that information in its electronic format is we get the pagination that's been created in the native applications. We get metadata, which is data about data. All right, when we look at a litigation, often attorneys are seeking who knew what when. And that metadata tells us a lot about when those documents were created who authored the document, who communicated on, on the record. Um, I think the other thing to stress here is that ESI is not just emails and attachments. You know, we always start there, but it includes a variety of, of formats um, in both structured and unstructured data. So we have, of course, email. That's the biggest one. Um, we also have individual files, Word documents, PDFs, Excel, um, we have web content, we have social media, we have short messaging like text messages and, um, and other different WhatsApp communications. Uh, so the realm of ESI is, is huge and there's so many 
technologies and custom technologies out there that um, to really understand what you're getting into, uh, you know, you kind of need to have a conversation with with your custodians. So what was the craziest type of ESI that you have had to collect that your custodian did not believe was ESI that could be or should be collected? Um, the the I guess we can call it the craziest, by far the worst one to work with was I had a litigation we were in um, with some mom and pop trucking companies in North Jersey. And many of them had these kind of custom built applications they were running on a computer that sat in the closet for the last 50 years, you know, printing out interchange receipts and uh, TIR transfer forms, which is all stuff for the shipping and, and trucking industry. But the systems had no way of really exporting data. Those functions were not built into the tool at all. Um, so it was it was certainly a challenge to get the data. And it was certainly a challenge to convince the custodians to let us have access to to these systems to try and, and, and get the data off of them. Um, so that that's number one for me as uh, the, the one thing I never want to do again. <laughs> you don't want the things stored in closets. Right. Yeah, <laughs> no access. Things, exactly. And that, you know, that's, that's one of the challenges for ESR, those, one of the big ones, those custom applications that require, um, you know, knowledge of, of the application and of the product, usually from the developer who created it. So how you end up getting this obsolete computer from a closet is you have to talk to potential custodians. And mm-hmm. so in my practice as a Delaware litigator, I like to have a preliminary custodian interview with my clients to understand generally how do they communicate? Where do they keep their documents or their emails? Are they saved to a system? What kind of system do they use? Uh, what kind of programs, what are questions that you think would be helpful to know, um, to ask a, a custodian? I think the, the first question is always, when did you delete the documents? Um, when? But, that uh, is, just when. But, but when, no. But all kidding aside, um, you know, it's, it's understanding, you know, the custodians may not understand technology, right? They're doing work, they're communicating. So it's important to ask them, how they're doing that in the normal course of business, right? So what are you using to send emails? What is your email domain? Um, We can look up email domains to see, is it hosted in Office 365? Is it inside of Gmail? Where else might it be? Um, You know, where are you storing data? Is it on your computer? Is it on a corporate computer? Is it on the network? Is it in the cloud? Um, So there's a number of uh, different questions, but ultimately it's what are you doing day to day to communicate and to store information and what software are you using? Uh, most of the time, the answer to that is I use Outlook, um, which which uh, requires a little more digging, but it still gives us an, an idea of, of what they're doing. All right. So I've asked my custodians these preliminary questions about their data, but I am not going to go collect their data um, personally. I'm going to need some help. So I'm going to go to someone like you, an e-discovery vendor. 
if I am new to the e-discovery world, how do I find a, a vendor and what should I be looking for? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the topics that will always come up when looking for a vendor or any contractor in any field is what's the cost going to be? And I'm opening with that only to say that that should be the last thing you talk about. Um, costs can be negotiated. So to make sure you're finding someone who can actually do the work that you need done and then worry about, you know, what the cost that goes along with that is. Um, things that we would look for in a vendor, because even as a vendor, there's a lot of times we need to involve a third party for different types of technology or different regions we don't have access to. Um, so what are the vendor's capabilities? You know, what software are they using? Is it a tool you're familiar with or are they going to introduce you to something new? If it's something new, can they show you that tool prior to you know, getting too far ahead of things? Um, what is their experience? Uh, do they have experience with collections? Do they have experience with specific types of collections, cell phones, social media? Um, what is their security like? Um, does the person you're talking to understand how the security at the vendor works? Do you need to involve somebody else, right? Because that's going to be one of the first questions from your custodians and your and their clients. You know, wh what are you doing with my data? Where is yeah. it going to be? Um, that's a prime question that yeah. I think every custodian asks is where are you taking my data and is the whole world going to see it? Right. Ex exactly. Yeah. So ask your vendor, you know, how they're handling data and how they're handling security and security incidents as well, because they happen. Um, talk to a project manager at the vendor, not just a salesperson. Um, we've seen many times and we've talked with individual vendors that we've worked with. And one of the complaints that we've gotten from project managers and professionals working inside the organization is, you know, our salespeople don't ask us if we're busy. They just go out, find work and bring it in. So, right. you know, make sure you're going to talk to the person who's actually going to have hands on your project. So you have a level of comfort that they know what they're, what they're talking about. Um, I think those are probably the, the biggest things. And, you know, once you're happy with the security, you've talked to a PM and you think they you know, are worth worthwhile, um, and you understand their capabilities along with the uh, their capabilities align with the needs of your litigation. Then talk costs. Um, and understand not just what the costs are, but how to manage costs as you move forward. Is that something they can help you with? You know, as the case eventually winds down but doesn't really go away, are you still going to be paying the same thing monthly, or is there a way to um, get a better, better, better uh, handle on that? Yeah, where to preserve the data in case you need it in a future exactly. future action. Yep. Great. Once we have a vendor set up and we've done the preliminary custodian interviews, we're going to actually collect the documents. Mm -hmm. And from my experience, there are different ways to collect documents. Even different vendors may go about it in a different way. What are the, you know, the ranges of collection that you can perform? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think one way to talk about that is a forensic collection versus a defensible collection. What are the differences between those two things? So in a true forensic collection, we have a bitstream image of the physical media where the information lives. This is very useful in 
especially criminal cases where you might be looking for deleted or partial evidence that could exist on the media. But a lot of times for litigation, you aren't going after deleted content. Um, sometimes you are, but many times you're not. Um, you're looking for things that exist in the normal course of business. And so a full forensic investigation is an unnecessary cost. Um, so we look at more targeted collections. Uh, we look for how can we get data from only specific folders on the company's network that are relevant to the litigation? How can we get mailboxes from individual custodians or text messages only with particular participants, right? We don't want their full phone at the end of the day, even though we often have to start with it. Um, the big thing there is that we're defensible. So even if we can't do a true forensic collection, can we document what we're doing and can we do it in a way that if we did it again, we'd get the same results? Um, and that's and that's most of the time what we see is that conversation with the custodians needs to happen to understand where the data is. And then we can go in with a more targeted approach, which uh, gives us less data to worry about cost savings and a lot of other efficiencies for the project as well. So many of my clients as uh, an attorney in Delaware, my clients are, are not always located in Delaware and they can be located throughout the country or honestly, even other countries. And so a problem that arises in the collection process is while I have a laptop, how are you going to be getting the data? I have a phone. How are you going to get the data from the phone? How do you resolve those issues? And, and are there sub issues that come up depending on yes. what type of so there are an infinite number of combinations, even talking just about mobile data. So do you have an iPhone or an Android? Which iPhone or Android do you have? Is it up to date? What apps are you using? All of those things can impact how we're going to collect data and how we're going to collect data remotely. Um, luckily, technologies come of a long way. We have a lot of bandwidth available. Very few things still beat the bandwidth of FedEx. So shipping encrypted media out to your custodians with an overnight label to get it back is sometimes the fastest way to get this information collected without having to travel on site. Uh, we also try to maintain a network of individuals around the country and internationally that we've worked with in the past. So if you do need to put somebody on premise and you can't get to that region yourself or your vendor can't, there's probably somebody in the area. And when you hire that person, you go back to the same process we talked about before of interviewing them to make sure they are worth the while of, of uh, using them on the project. Some of the other challenges that we see with remote collection, they, they are largely satisfied by the ability to ship a hard drive, but they come down to the massive amounts of data that people can acquire over time. Um, hard drives and computers are in the multiple terabytes now easily and uh, some companies are pushing 20 terabyte hard drives which eventually will be in consumer devices for whatever reason people feel the need to hold on to all of that so you can download all the disney movies that your kids are watching on repeat <laughs> and i never have to <laughs> go buy it or, or look for it elsewhere <laughs> exactly um and some of the things that i think are important with the remote collection is and this goes back to talking to your custodian, uh, what are the capabilities for calling that data at the time of collection? And I think that's what you're asking here as well. It's not always out there. 
you cannot always collect only those specific text messages or only specific emails because the custodian may be using an email system that doesn't have a reliable search function. Um, so often with a phone, we end up collecting the entire phone, calling it down to the information we want and discarding the balance of data or returning it to counsel or the custodian for retention. Uh, and we see similar challenges across all types of data sets. Um, often as we move forward into a project, we start to understand a little bit better uh, where data exists, how it's being accessed, and then we can make a, a good plan for collecting that data. Um, I think the takeaway from that is timing. All of this is going to impact the timing of your collection. If you need to start processing and searching data tomorrow, you're going to miss your deadline. Uh, <laughs> and I'm always, I'm always emailing and saying, we need to collect documents that I can run searches on and look at tomorrow. Yes. Every Everything is done expeditiously. Uh, however, some things do require a couple days to, to turn around, especially if you want it done correctly, right? Cheap, fast, and accurate. You can only pick two. That's that's great. I All of that is rings very true uh, from my experiences. I would also step back and say that we're talking about text message data and not all jurisdictions or not all cases are going to require collecting custodians' phones. It might be more limited to email, but to understand what the possibilities are and how broad it is, text messages and phones are something that you you may collect and it's good to understand the challenges that um, can arise in that process. When you're talking about obligation to collect, let's say you're in a jurisdiction where text messages are not required, social media is not required. However, there's things there that your client feels are helpful to their litigation. Is it good to go after those those sources, or does that open you up to additional discovery issues that are best kind of left aside due to the jurisdiction's rules? I would say it's always better to overcollect. And if I get a response in the custodian interview, oh, I have text messages about this subject, in, in Delaware, it would be a challenge for me to then say, I'm going to not collect when mm -hmm. I know that there are. Once you have that knowledge, at least if you collect it, you have it mm -hmm. in the event that anything happens. Uh, but I think that having the answer to the question already raises the discovery issues. Gotcha. Okay. So we have collected the documents. Now I need to review the documents. And one of the first steps that I take as an attorney that is managing a document review is creating a document review memorandum. So first of all, how did we get here? Why are we looking at these documents? We were served requests for the production of documents. And so we don't need to produce all of these documents. We're only going to produce those that are responsive. And so a memorandum will lay out the criteria for a responsive document. 
And this just allows everyone on the team to be uh, on the same level of understanding what is responsive. Because you can have internal reviewers, but but vendors also have contract reviewers, right? Mm -hmm. So the memorandum will go over responsiveness, but it will also discuss how to use the review platform to aid the reviewing process. So once we have the document review memorandum, what is responsive, we need to get the documents that we are actually reviewing, not just the documents that were collected, because this is gonna be a smaller subset. With uh, the opposing party, I'm going to negotiate search terms if it is a, a large universe of data. If it's a, if it's a very small e-discovery matter and there's only you know, 1,000 documents, most likely we aren't going to negotiate search terms. But where it is a larger data set, and you can have data sets, gosh, what is the largest data set you've had, Andy? 30 million emails, I think. Wow. And that was the data set that you collected or after search terms? That was the data set that we produced. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I feel sorry for some attorneys. (laughs) Yes. It was uh, massive. Wow. Okay. Um, So hopefully you're not reviewing or producing, I should say, 30 million. Uh, You're going to apply search terms. So that's where the vendor steps in, right? So you have this raw data. What are you doing how does it end up in my review platform? Sure, yeah. Um, so so first thing we're going to do is we're going to get that data ready for searching. We're going to bring it into an e-discovery or forensic tool that is capable of indexing not only the text within those records, but also the metadata. So we can search recipients, file names, subjects, um, apply date criteria. Uh, we're going to deduplicate this data. Um, When we talk about deduplication, this is a conversation that we, the vendor, need to be including counsel on. Um, Are you applying the same search criteria to all of your custodians? Um, If not, that's going to affect how we apply deduplication. We don't want to be omitting records as duplicates when the original didn't respond to a search term. Um, Ultimately, we'll work with you on running these search reports We'll turn the report over to you. You can analyze the number of hits and the number of hits, including families. And when you come to uh, you know, a number and an agreement with opposing on something that is uh, appropriate to the, the value of the litigation, then we push those documents into the review workspace. And I'll add in there, I'll jump in to explain a little bit more of that process after I get a hit report. So I will negotiate search terms that I think will hit on what is responsive and not hit on too many non-responsive documents. I will run, I'll ask the vendor to run a hit report for me so that I can get a sense of if it really, if my search terms are good or not. And if it's just completely out of proportion to the value of the litigation, the burden, then I will go back to opposing counsel and say, you know, this isn't proportionate to what is at stake or the time that we have if something's expedited. And so we will renegotiate search terms 
and then run another hit report. And this can go back and forth quite, you know, quite a few times. Uh, and then once we have that final set of search terms, that's when the data goes on to. Um, but in the process of that, you could load a sample set. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so many things now are cloud-based. And I guess to elaborate on that some, I should say, so many e-discovery platforms are end-to-end solutions. So the processing and the review can happen within the same tool. There's really no reason why your vendor wouldn't be able to give you samples of data. So you can go in when you're testing the terms, you don't have to say, well, there's 10,000 hits, so we're going to throw away you know, the name of opposing parties. Um, you can go look at the data and see, all right, well, it's hitting on this signature block. You know, let's modify the term. You know, let's work with our vendor to test out, not only test out different search criteria, but get some ideas on what other search criteria might be useful there. What are operators that are available to eliminate those false hits accurately without over-eliminating data? Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's definitely all available. Um, I would say that the other thing that's important here just to talk about search reports is keep track of the reports that you run and when, when you promote data into the workspace. Uh, is there a way that you can track in the workspace which search report you know, triggered that document to come in? Are there search highlights that can be applied to the records? This will be a little off topic from the, the question that we're answering, but it's related and it's very useful when you're looking at a record and you go, this is non-responsive or it's, you know, highly privileged or highly confidential. Why is this even here? Yeah. Um, and so you can have some quick insight into that. So you're not wasting a lot of time on search criteria you've already agreed to. Once the data is in your review space, um, then you have a number of different tools available to assist you with that review. Um, Those include everything from structured analytics, which is offered by the majority of industry leaders for e-discovery solutions. Um, Structured analytics include things like email threading, near duplicate detection, language identification. So these can be used to eliminate redundant information. So, you know, email threading as a popular example. If you and I email back and forth 10 times, we don't need to read all 10 of those emails to get the conversation. We start at email number 10 and just scroll down through the quoted text. So we can take advantage of those tools to make things more efficient. Uh, We also have tools like active learning and technology-assisted review. Um, I think there's a there is a stigma around machine assistance for review and attorneys tend to shy away from it because they don't want to take the risk of trying it for the first time on a project. It's scary. It, we are control freaks. We want to see every single document and you're, I mean, explain to me how it works and why I shouldn't be scared. Right. Um, and, and, and you want to be able to tell your client confidently that the things you identified as, as responsive actually have to do with it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've, how it works is it's classifying information as likely relevant or not. Uh, you don't have to rely on th- the machine's decision to say something is relevant. You can use that as a guide to what is likely relevant or not to make your review more efficient. You can use it as a QC. So just because the system goes through and classifies 10,000 emails, 
you can still review all 10,000 emails, but you can use the machine to help you review them faster or to identify things you might have overlooked or included that you shouldn't have included. Um, if What's important with, or rather a recommendation I would make here is start taking advantage of these tools as soon as you can. It's better to use them in cases where you don't need them so you can get a familiarity with how they work, how you test the results uh, for accuracy before you need them for litigation in order to meet the deadline. Because then you're using a tool and you're really relying on the vendor, but it's hard for you to say, you know, go to sleep that night thinking, well, okay, I know what we did was what's correct. Yeah. I, I, and from my perspective on all of this, and I use, I have in some manner used all of these technologies to help a review is transparency with the other side. So all parties, if you are using email threading, you should, you know, it's good practice to tell the other side that you're doing email threading. It's going to affect your privilege log. Uh, it's, it's just a good thing to disclose, as well as if you are using a, a technology-assisted review that, that you do not review everything based on a responsiveness rate that you're getting from the review. I'm, I'm not explaining that well, so we, can you help me? Yeah, we can get really, really nerdy on, on the assisted review project. Uh, so uh, what we do with, and we'll talk about active learning because that's the most popular technology that we see used today. Active learning is going to classify your documents on a, on a plane from zero to 100. Records that score a 100 are highly likely to be relevant. Records that score a zero probably are not relevant. As you go through the review, the system continues to learn and continues to recategorize or reclassify those documents with those scores. And we also track the relevance rate of review. So we're reviewing documents, the system is saying, hey, these are probably responsive. Let's push them to the front of the review so we see those first. The reviewers are going through and they're clicking the button and they're saying, yes, that actually is responsive. That's our relevant rate, right? So if we see 100 records and 100 of them are responsive, relevance rate is 100. As we start to run out of relevant records, our relevance rate drops. Okay, we just looked at 100 records, five of them were responsive. Our relevance rate is now 5%. This is when counsel uh, needs to say, are we okay with potentially missing 5% of the relevant universe of records, or can we stop our review here? And I think that will come down to burden. You know, what does the remaining universe look like? And at that point, if you decide you're okay with that threshold, then you do some sampling against the discarded set. You run, uh, you run different statistical samples to review those non-responsive documents, those non-responsive records, and determine how many of them actually should be responsive. And again, you come up with a, a percentage and you decide, is that something I'm comfortable with calling it done? It's it's a scary thing to, <laughs> to say, but if all parties agree on that percentage, then, you know, why not use technology? It, it really will help us at the end of the day, get rid of, you know, all the spam emails that we have to go through in a review that can be really helpful. 
So I want to step back a little bit and talk, um, kind of finish up our discussion, talking about the relationship between the attorney reviewer or the, the attorney that's managing the review and the vendor project manager. What are conversations that should be happening at the beginning of the review process to aid you know, the entire process from the review through production through privilege log. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even, even as far back as collection, this information can be very useful. Uh, you know, if we know you're going to use a particular platform for reviewing data, it may tell us to use tool A instead of tool B when we're doing the collection because it has a capability that will make the data more presentable. Uh, when it comes time for trial or depositions. Um, Otherwise, the conversations just at a high level are, what are your goals? What is your deadline? Is there anything abnormal you want to do with this data? Is there a specific way it needs to be produced? That's very useful for the vendor to know up front. Um, What is your production protocol? look like. If we can set these things up at the start of a review, hey, we're going to be producing every document that's responsive and not privileged, well, we can start creating searches right at the start of the review to automatically populate that universe so your more senior attorneys can go in, look at those records as the review's ongoing, and say, oh, hey, we need to make a change to the review protocol. With regards to the changes that you're making to the memorandum, One of the other impacts from those changes is the documents that have already been completed prior. So that's where we can take advantage of other tools inside of the various review platforms that are out there, one of them being auditing. What documents were reviewed prior to that change uh, and do they need to be re-reviewed? So we should be able to find those efficiently, get them batched back out for another pass whenever those changes occur. Um, going back to that review protocol, one suggestion I'd add there is le- leave space in your document descriptions. Um, having having worked with our own review managers several times, I, I, that's one of the biggest, uh, most useful tips I've I've seen her her put out there is you know, put five blank lines after the description of a of an issue, so that if there's a change, your contract reviewer can take a note right in line with the original document. Um, or, or be prepared to send out new versions of it. Mm-hmm. You, when you start a review, you don't know what's in it. And so you might not know all the relevant players uh, for privilege issues or what could be the hot documents. So that, that's a great advice. Yeah, and, and I think the biggest thing, uh, you know, the mindset of forward thinking is what's really important when you're working with a vendor or not. It's you know, if I create a field that is multiple choice, you know, privilege and not privileged, what happens when somebody tags both of those boxes on a document? You end up having to review it again. So whenever you make a decision on how your database is going to be set up for review or how you're going to code certain issues and privilege issues, think about the impact of that. Does this mean I have to review it again? Is my intention to review potentially privileged records a second time? Um, Or is this just going to create unnecessary coding conflicts that I then have to clean up in the future when I've got an hour left to submit my my production deadline. I think that's that's the one thing we left off the table that we absolutely should have brought up is how long does the vendor need to run 
run a production. Uh, we always say oh, yes. 24 hours at DLS, but I think you've had... I've had 72. I've had um, longer that the vendor needs sign-off on the documents. And sign-off means all your conflicts are clear and the data set is 100% ready to go off to be processed. Yeah, how, how does that feel knowing that you um, you finish your review and your production will go out five days later and you can't make any changes? <laughs> it is a little uneasy, but at least you feel done. <laughs> Hopefully in advance of when your deadline right, is. Right. Once we've gone through the review process, we've made some productions, and I am very excited as a document reviewer that the project might be ending. It's not. <laughs> it's probably not. <laughs> uh, I need to make sure, and this is something that as someone managing a review, it's really important to keep in mind is have you reviewed all of the documents? Are there documents out there that have needs for the review coded or for whatever reason were excluded from prior productions? And that's, uh, I hope you will tell me a vendor can help with that process. Absolutely. Uh, starting all the way back to collection, we, we maintain what I call my, my shopping list. You know, we put down every item that we speak to the custodians about uh, to say, hey, we talked about your phone. Did we collect your phone? When did we collect your phone, right? If there's new issues that come up after that date, well, we should be able to look at our collection log and say, all right, we need to collect more data because we don't have the full timeline. Um, how many records got promoted to review? We talked about you know, tracking that by search term highlighting but tracking the individual search reports and when they were promoted is also useful because you can then pull up that document, that change log, and, and show, hey, we should have 120,000 records that we've reviewed. How many are actually coded for responsiveness? And if it's less than 120,000, why? Uh, is it because of email threading? Is it because we ended our review early? Uh, everything should total up to the grand total number of documents that you have agreed to. Uh, where, where this also is useful is kind of late in the game changes to your project. We've been reviewing, we've been running searches, we get a new custodian or we learn about a, a secret Yahoo account that nobody bothered to mention until it showed up as a BCC on 5,000 emails. Never happens. They always pop up. <laughs> it's, it's shocking. And it's like, uh, so we can use that, that log to say, okay, what were our operative search terms for promoting data? Let's apply that same process to this new data source so that it's handled consistently. And if it's not going to be handled consistently, if there is new, uh, new search terms or a different protocol for this particular set, then make sure your vendor has that information as well so that they're not just globally deduplicating it against everything else. They're treating it as a unique source of information. Okay, so we have reviewed, we've produced, we have done a quality control to make sure that we have the same number of documents, you know, that we started with, that we understand what happened to the documents, where they mm -hmm. ended up, if they were produced or not. And I think, you know, separate from privilege log, that is the document review process and e-discovery. And 
I, I want to thank you for joining me just to talk about some e-discovery best practices. And to anyone listening, Andy and I recently spoke on an ABA business law basics panel called e-discovery best practices, a recording of that more in-depth discussion of what we talked about today was on August 11th, 2022. And you can access recording and the slides on the ABA's website.